I'm Amy Antonucci. I'm here to welcome you to True Tales Live, our June 2019 show, filmed at Portsmouth Public Media TV, Channel 98 in New Hampshire. Thanks so much to everyone watching and everyone listening, and a special thanks to our studio audience who we're so happy to have here. Our mission at True Tales is to provide a space for people to tell their first-person experience stories, stories that reflect our community's personal and cultural diversity and help us bridge differences and build understanding and respect for everyone. While we encourage the development of storytelling skills with our monthly workshops and other assistance we give to tellers, this is not a competition. We're not going to have any... Uh, you know, ranking or judging or scoring or anything like that tonight. Our belief is that stories shared from the heart inspire us and bind us together, and that is the reason that we're here. Our theme for tonight is heroes. There are a number of definitions for that word, and the one that I thought fit really well for tonight's show dates back to ancient Greece um, and translates to protector or defender. What we don't mean is like a superhero with beyond human powers. Tonight you're going to meet people who range from skilled to scared, who are pushing themselves or just really being themselves. And we think each of you will recognize others in your life and parts of yourself in each of our stories. We'll hear from five tellers. We have John Dover, John Lovering, then John Dover, then Matthew Francis, um, Tina Charpentier, and then Sharon Jones Jenkins. They'll each have a 10-minute limit for their storytelling. Our MC Pat Spaulding will introduce each of them to you before they come up here. After the storytelling, you can stay tuned for an interview that David Frainer will do with Matthew Francis, one of tonight's tellers. But first, the stories. Let's welcome Pat up here to start introducing you to our tellers. Come on up. Hey, everybody. It's good to see a full audience and some new faces. Wonderful. The first teller that we have tonight is of, um, well, is one of my personal heroes, <laughs> John Lovering. He lives in Dover, New Hampshire with his wife, Melanie, and he is a founding member of this very show, True Tales Live. John has two daughters, three grandchildren, and is a retired biology and media production teacher with 35 years of experience. His current hobbies include restoring antique radios and collecting old-time radio shows. His podcast, Heirloom Radio, a different kind of oldies program, has over 700 shows in its growing collection that can be heard on SoundCloud.com, iTunes, and Google Play Music. John has over 52,000 listeners. That's a lot of listeners. Got a lot to say. And as if that isn't enough to keep him busy, he also does the video and audio editing of this program, True Tales Live, and Don't Dis My Ability, also here on PPM-TV. Tonight, John will take us on a different, or take on a different role to tell us the story 
of one Saturday morning in 1983 when he met a quiet and gentle man who, in a matter of moments, totally changed his life. John's story is titled, I Hope I Can Save Your Legs, Son. John Levering. That's good for me? Okay. It was 8 a.m., March 19, 1983. I was being transferred by ambulance from a local hospital to Leahy Clinic emergency room, and uh, as the doors were opened, Melanie, my wife, was by my side. She had a gentle smile on her face that I, I really thought was more of a brave attempt to uh, cover up the fear of the journey that we were about to begin. I was 35, I had two daughters, 11 and 4, I was paraplegic, and I had no sensory awareness of anything from my chest down. It was as if the lower two-thirds of my body did not exist. A physician immediately greeted me. His name was Dr. Charles Fager, and he said, Hello, Mr. and Mrs. Lovering. I have read your chat, John. He removed the sheet that was covering my legs. Can you move your legs, John? No. I can't. He said, how long has it been since you've moved your legs? I said, 48 hours, maybe more. And then he paused, and he was quiet. He came toward me, he put his hand on my shoulder, and he said, John, spinal nerves that are compressed for more than 48 hours are generally permanently disabled. I hope I can save your legs, son. I had no time to process that because he was pushing the gurney down the hallway very fast. It was like in a movie. He paused by the nurse's station and said, I need this person, I need that person, stat, this man needs surgery immediately. And then down the hallway we went. He said to me, the first thing we need to do, John, is find the location of the problem. I can't fix it unless I can find it. So you need a myelogram. So I found myself soon in a place that was a cold room a diagnostic room, there was lots of equipment around, there was a choreograph going on with the nurses and assistants as they moved to put positions of uh, equipment in place, plugging things in, and they were scurrying about. Soon I was laying on my stomach with my head lower than my feet. Uh, they injected a contrast dye at the base of my spine, and I could see on the monitor the white dye was flowing up towards my head. When it got up to my chest, it stopped. Dr. Fager says, there it is, there's the problem. And he quickly marked me in the front and the back with an ink pen, and we were off. Again, the surgeon was pushing me down the hallway. And we're going down the hallway, and he said to me, okay, we know where it is, but we don't know what it is. It's either a bulging disc, could be a tumor. He said, I will know what it is when I get in there, and I'll do my best to get that pressure off those spinal nerves. Next, counting backwards. 10, 9, 8, deep sleep. Six hours later, I woke up. I was on the operating table. I tried to move my legs, but I couldn't. I could neither feel them or move them. Nothing had changed. 
Dr. Fager spoke softly to me. He said, John, I've removed a peach-sized tumor from your spinal cord. He said, it grew from your, your lung backwards, wrapped around the vertebrae and into the vertebrae, and then wrapped around the spinal cord like a cigar band would wrap around a cigar. I had to remove one of your vertebrae. I was able to relieve the pressure. I asked if it was cancer. He said, yes. But I don't know what kind, and I won't know until we get the lab report back. What I did not know at the time, what I found out months later, was that he had told my wife, Melanie, that he believed the cancer was carcinoma. If it was, he gave me three to six months to live, and there would be no need to attempt to rehabilitate me. Melanie joined, was joined by my father and sister in my room, and they were there when Dr. Fager came in about an hour later to check on me. He spoke again in his soft and gentle voice, saying that some tumor had remained in the surrounding vertebrae. He said, I was not able to remove all of it. So once the tumor type is known, we will have to deal with getting out the remainder of that tumor. Three days later, the test result came back. The oncologist, Dr. David Steinberg, walked into my room to tell me some good news. The cancer was treatable with radiation if it did not metastasize or spread. Many tests were done to make sure that it had not. Now, with some expectation for recovery, I would begin physical therapy, basically just stretching my legs. They hoped that the nerves would develop, would rebound, and I would be able to move, but right now it was just stretching. However, Dr. Fager did not give me false hope. He said, one in 10 chance of ever walking again. I respected him for that. Uh, he was a man that did not to pull any punches. Um, he was a man of character. Two weeks later, a total surprise. Dr. Fager came in. He sat on a stool beside the bed. And he said, John, I've just been diagnosed with bladder cancer. He said, I am not going to be able to continue to treat you while I go through my treatments. I have going, I'm going to be doing consultation with another neurosurgeon who will take over. But he said, you know, being diagnosed with cancer has put me much closer to you and other patients with cancer than I ever was before. My empathy is incredible. I think we can beat it together. You and I are going to fight this, and we'll, we'll win. I'm standing here tonight so you know that I'm a lucky man. On a momentous day after one of many of the radiation treatments, I wiggled the big toe on my right foot. That was my admission to the New England Rehab Hospital for five weeks. That got me in. If I hadn't done that, always remember that, wiggle your white, white toe. <laughs> okay, that has its story, a whole bunch of stories in itself, being in that rehab hospital. I can't tell it here, so we'll just jump ahead. By the 1st of June, I went home. And my wife and my father took me to rehab here in Portsmouth at the hospital and at the pool near the high school three days a week during the summer. Upon Melanie's insistence, a physical therapist taught her how to do strength exercises with me, and she did them judiciously twice every day, believe me, and I wasn't always cooperative. Uh, she also slept on the floor on a mattress at the foot of my bed for months because during the night my legs would start to spasm. She would wake up and she would rub my legs until I fell back to sleep. 
September 1983, I went back to teaching earth science using a wheelchair and a walker. Melanie was my chauffeur. She was also my lab assistant in the classroom. I was getting stronger, though. I could walk a few steps with a walker and actually stand up with a pair of crutches. Things were getting better. Then on November 12th, after having a full body scan the day before, I received a phone call at the school from my oncologist. He said, John, I got some bad news. He said, the x-rays show you have 13 tumors in your skeleton. They're located all over you. He said, we need to do chemotherapy immediately. The next day, I went into chemotherapy for three months. I had to stay in the hospital for uh, four weeks during that three months because it was so toxic, it was damaging my kidneys. I had a 50% chance of surviving the cancer. I returned to my classroom in March of 1984. The cancer appeared to be in remission, and the oncologist said, we're going to raise that level to 75%. I'll take it. Even though I had a quadruple bypass in 2001, because I had a heart attack mowing my lawn, two days before 9-11, I had an aortic valve replacement a year ago this month, and both were due to the scar tissue that I had from the radiation treatment back in 1983. I have been cancer-free for 36 years. I kept in contact with Dr. Fager. When at Leahy for other appointments, I would stop in and say hello to him, ask him how he was doing. He, same with me. The day I went in without a mechanical aid, he had tears in his eyes. He got up and he hugged me. And he said, I am so happy that you're doing well. He had survived the bladder cancer. I had survived my cancer. He was right. For years, I sent him holiday cards with notes, well wishes, thanking him for what he had done for me and my family. He always wrote back, asked, how are Melanie? How's Melanie? How are the girls? Hope everything's okay. So many times he told me how glad he was that things worked out the way they did. On April 8, 2014, Charles Fager died at the age of 90. I had known and stayed in touch with, it, touch with him for 31 years. During his 54 years at Leahy Clinic, he published 130 outstanding uh, professional articles and wrote six books on neurosurgery. He treated over 6,000 patients. I was one of them. On May 2, 2014, Dr. Howard Grant, the CEO of Leahy, called me and said that while Dr. Fager's sons were looking through his desk, they found an envelope full of all cards and letters that I had sent him. He kept them. They asked if I would do the honor of representing the 6,000-plus patients that their father had treated at Leahy by speaking on their behalf at their memorial ceremony that they held on May 16th in Leahy Auditorium. I didn't think twice about saying yes. On May 16th, Melanie and I went to Leahy. I, sp I spoke before an overflow audience of 750 physicians, nurses, former patients, and their families. That experience was a highlight of my life. It brought my heartfelt joy for me to be able to publicly, publicly thank and honor my hero while representing 6,000 other patients who probably felt the same way. He was not only an amazingly talented physician, but a compassionate, kind, and gentle man. And as I close, there's a second hero 
in my story. My wife, Melanie. She took care of two children, a paraplegic husband with cancer. She worked three days a week as a guidance counselor, and she did so much more than I could ever list here. We began dating as juniors in high school. We celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary on February 1st this year with our children and three grandchildren. Having two heroes in one lifetime that enabled me to be standing before you now at the age of 72 is a remarkable gift, and I do not take it for granted. This story has a happy ending. Thank you. No dry eyes up here. <laughs> I know both John and Melanie pretty well. What a team. Woo. <laughs> okay, next up. Sorry, John. Hard act to follow. We have John Dover. Um, he lives in Ham Northampton, New Hampshire, and he wanted to be a writer from a very early age, but he didn't think he could make a living at it. So he got a degree in psychology. This led to his first real job at the Methodist Home for Children in Philadelphia as a child care worker, where, nine months later, he narrowly missed being fired. John earned a master's degree and came to New England to accept a seated-funded job for the chronically unemployed as a tutor counselor at the Crotchet Mountain Rehab Center School. He then went on to spend the next 38 years as a high school guidance counselor, first in Farmington, New Hampshire, and later at Winnicunnet High in Northampton, or Hampton, until finally retiring in 2014. Over the course of his career, John came to learn that conflict is a daily part of high school life, but that the mediation program, which is supposed to reduce the likelihood of fights, usually does. Usually. The title of John's story tonight is Mediation Disaster. <laughs> Come on up, John. Thank you, Pat. It's about a decade ago, and I decided to start this mediation program because, like Pat said, conflict between students, it's just so commonplace. And... To, to reduce that is going to allow them to learn a little bit better. So what we would do is we'd have uh, two guidance counselors sitting down with the two students that were in conflict, and we would give them uh, some ground rules, like don't insult each other, um, don't give each other dirty looks, and um, sort of commonsensical ideas um, that would... Uh, uh, don't, uh, don't interrupt each other, so that would keep things flowing. And the things that we would really attend to is um, listening when uh, the conflict was being described by the students to see if one of the two injured parties would take a little responsibility for having played a role in the conflict. Because if one party could say, yeah, I guess I really shouldn't have done that, then the other party can say, well, I guess I shouldn't have done that either. And then you've kind of got the thing beaten 
And all you needed to do at that point is work out the details of the conflict resolution. So on this particular day, um, I've got these two girls. I've got Sally here, who's got kind of spiky hair, kind of strong looking, um, lots of piercings, maybe a tattoo. And then on this side, I've got Anne, who's kind of petite and kind of a, a meek sort of manner um, and quiet and very different sort of kids that I was surprised to learn that the conflict that they had related to the fact that they had both gone out with the same boy. And this was a common mediation problem, but it was just like um, puzzling that these two kids that were so different had the same boyfriend. Anyway, so I had gone around to the other guidance counselors on this day to see if I could find somebody else to do the mediation with me because you want someone else there that can listen and try to be aware when the right thing is said or to just kind of keep things going so that the mediation can be facilitated and, and run smoothly. But everybody was busy. So I decided I've done lots of mediations before. I can do this by myself. And so I sat the two kids down in my office. And I'm trying to get them to kind of like chat up about what has happened in the past. And like with a lot of mediations, they have a little bit of past history. I think they both went to the same middle school. So there was, there was some stuff in addition to the boy um, that I was trying to get to. And, but I'm not really feeling like I'm getting too much from either of them. Sometimes there'll be kids that are like, you know, they just take it and run and they're talking and this is a quiet mediation and I don't have anybody else to try and bring things out. And the, and the clock is ticking and I'm starting to wonder, okay, I don't, am I, is this going to work? And so I decide to kind of cut to the chase. And what I mean by that is um, I know what I want, which is like an agreement in which they both agree not to harass each other by, again, giving each other dirty looks, talk, making remarks on Facebook, um, you know, talking to their friends. Because what happens with in, in high school, when two pe people have a big conflict and they're ready to fight, it's not just the two of them. They bring in all their friends because misery loves company. So you've got two whole parties that are ready you know, to, to go to war. But again, in this mediation, I'm not feeling like I'm really getting so far, so I'm just, I'm kind of writing this stuff, and can we agree to this? Can we agree, you know, to not give each other dirty looks and so on, and um, getting ready to write up their passes, send them back to class, when suddenly, um, and I feel like in my mind, it's already done. We're, 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 we're ready to move out. Suddenly, Sally jumps out of her chair, and she goes and she slams Anne right in the face, really hits her, pops her hard right in the face. And like inside, I am in such turmoil about this because I've sort of betrayed the confidence of Anne. I feel so bad for her. But, and I'm also kind of thinking, okay, now that this mediation program is totally done because. <laughs> 
the, the grapevine in a high school works really well. The kids are going to know about this, and who's ever going to want to volunteer to do this again? And, but, but I can't think about this or process this because I've got you know, this situation that's totally out of control. So I jump up, and I grab hold of Sally and push her against the wall, and I'm like, I'm literally like holding her, kind of bracing her because she's still struggling. In fact, I think she's trying to knee me as I'm holding her there against the wall. And I'm like, this isn't right. <laughs> um, but um, meanwhile, um, there was the noise of her colliding with the wall was loud enough so that the guidance counselor next to me, Emily, comes running out. She's knocking on the door, and I'm like, not even saying anything, and so she tries to open the door, but my foot is wedged right near where the door is, so she could only get the door open about six inches um, without colliding with my foot, and I feel like I can't move my foot because um, then I'm putting Sally down, and then, you know, who knows what's going to happen, but so I'm, I'm like in this quandary and like wondering what's happening, and all of a sudden, Sally says, it's okay, dude. And her body relaxes it. And I really feel kind of honored that she's calling me dude. <laughs> it's ridiculous. But um, she says this. And, I, and so I do let her down. I'm, I'm wary at this point, but I let her down. And um, at that point, I can move my foot away from the door. And then Emily can come in and grab Anne and bring her out um, and get the call home to her mom, and I'm, I'm like trying to prove, profusely apologize to Anne for having, you know, uh, broken her, you know, what I said, it's going to be a safe place, it wasn't, um, and the principal comes down, and he looks, and first he gives Sally a three-day out-of-school suspension, because she started to fight, and then he looks at me, and he says, are you okay, and I'm like, fine. But, like, inside, I'm, like, not fine at all. Because when you separate two kids from a fight, the high school kids, they're strong. And you feel like you're in a fight yourself. You really do. Your, your adrenaline is sky high. So the last thing in the world I want to do is go back to work. But I'm, like, say, I'm fine. And, um, and that's what I do. And I, I go back to work. And the mediation program, just so that you know, does continue. I understand that it's still going on. I was really grateful for that because I thought it's done. Um, I want to say, I don't know that there were any heroes in the story, although it takes a tremendous amount of courage for the kids to come up and agree to something that can be really scary. Like you've got this terrible conflict and you've heard they're going to do terrible things to you, and now you're going to meet with them in your office and try to be honest. And it's really kind of heroic, I think, of them to do that. But the people that I really want to say thank you to are the teachers who every day deal with these kind of crazy conflicts in their classroom, and they do it with such poise and grace. So thank you to those people, and thank you to you guys. <laughs> Hey, thanks, John. I remember high school. <laughs> Don't really remember experience like that. Before I introduce our next teller, I have an announcement to make about a parking problem. There is a Kia Spottage, Spartage that is parked um, in a driveway 
I think it's over that way that needs to be moved um, because there's a neighbor that's trying to park and uh, it, the Spartage is in a no parking zone. So does anybody own something like that? IKEA? Spartage? No? Not our problem then? Okay. Um, I don't own one. I've got a Subaru. Pretty sure that's what I came in, so. Next up, we have Matthew Francis, who lives in Portland, Maine. He is an educational speaker and author of the book, My Resurrected Spirit. Matthew received his degree in sociology at the University of Southern Maine. He teaches workshops for transitions at adult education classes and speaks nationally on matters of mental health, suicide prevention, and LGBTQ plus issues. He is the host of two talk shows, one in Maine and in, one in New Hampshire, and he loves to tell a good story. In his free time, Matthew enjoys sacred circle dance, hiking, kayaking, and spending time with friends. His story tonight is about a young person who, even with so much going against themselves, bullying, poverty, and gender dysphoria, still is able to act with a heroism that inspires and fosters hope in others. Its title is Pete. Come on up, Matthew. Thank you. That's the president of my fan club. <laughs> All alone for so many years, and I'd never met anyone like myself, but that was going to change. I had met tomboys, but the girls seemed to grow out of that phase. I didn't. It simply seemed to grow stronger by the day. I was 12, and many of my girlfriends had started menses. I hadn't, and I was glad because I was at such odds with my body. It's hard to determine why my body wasn't responding. Was it due to trauma, neglect, or perhaps my own psychological desire to remain androgynous for as long as possible? Looking back, I'm sure it was a combination of all of the above. We moved again, as I was now residing with my mother, and moving was something that we did often. However, this time it was a bit different. We went into housing, and it wasn't because of a new boyfriend. I remember it so clearly, driving into our new place. My mother was bubbly with excitement. It was in the city, but it was not downtown. She was so proud that she didn't need a man to support us. She bragged about her new freedom and independence. She said everything was going to be better now. I was caught up in her enthusiasm, and I found myself holding my breath with anticipation. It was a clear and early evening. The sun was starting to go down, which lent a cheeriness to the situation. It seemed symbolic that we would wake up to a brand new life in the morning. Once we turned the corner onto Spring Street, my mother was still chatty, but I sensed a strain in her, which I couldn't pinpoint. The cheeriness gave way to warnings. We would have to be careful who we played with. These were tough kids, and we had to avoid them. And I grew concerned as my mom went on to add that we wouldn't be allowed to leave our yard. In fact, this brought up immediate alarm, as this had never been a requirement before. 
I waited to hear more, but suddenly she grew silent. She continued her silence for maybe 15 minutes more. Our housing was at the end of a dead-end street, and I began to understand this might not be such a good move. Since it was still warm and pleasant, we had our car windows down, and it was the smell that I first noticed. It overpowered me. The air was stale and thick with rotting garbage and urine. I held my breath to stifle the gag reflex. I didn't want to concern Mom, who I knew was still anticipating miracles. She saw me grimace and reassured me, It'll be all right. You'll see. Our place, our own place, her voice trailed off. Don't be like me. Don't you ever need a man. I smiled up at her, trying to show my appreciation, but I knew it was going to be difficult. The closer we got, the more unpleasant it became. The houses were so dilapidated that I couldn't believe anyone was actually living in them. Clearly there were, though, as folks were gathered in their porches, smoking and drinking and looking generally unfriendly. They eyeballed us suspiciously, and I did the same to them. I saw small children running around, some half-dressed and some not at all. It appeared that everyone drank red Kool-Aid. Most were filthy and some had snot running down their face. There were mounds of garbage everywhere, and even though I had been poor my whole life, this was a city poverty, and I wasn't accustomed to it. I felt fear form in the pit of my stomach, and my throat closed in on me. After Mom parked the car, she seemed rejuvenated and again excited. See, Annie, we don't need a man. I did this. I did this for us, and we're free. I forced a smile and did my best to share in her delight. The smell of rot was still thick in the air, was penetrating by blaring rock music, and folks hanging out of their windows, catcalling my mom, who is very pretty. Ignore them, said mom. As we walked forward the door, my heart sank again. We had to navigate around mounds of debris that cluttered the walkway. As we moved forward, mom said, don't worry, once it's cleaned up, it'll be perfect. She had trouble unlocking the door, despite the fact that a swift kick could have knocked the whole thing over. As we entered, Mom fumbled for the light switch, and my sense of smell tried to adjust to this new smell, a combination of bleach, urine, and shit. My eyes instantly watered, and my throat wanted to slam shut. It took tremendous effort to try to keep up an optimistic composure. Here we are, Mom declared in an overly exuberant voice. We all looked at her, expectant and hopeful, thinking somehow she was going to make this all right. It was completely empty and downright filthy. You don't need to take your shoes off, Mom said. Not until it's been cleaned. Well, my mood was instantly buoyed by this indulgence. <laughs> I began to explore and discovered that we had an upstairs. In my mind, it was a mansion. We had three bedrooms, so I was even going to have a room of my own. Despite my initial reaction, I too was starting to warm up to this place. But after several days of cleaning and adjusting, I went outside to meet our new neighbors. I had grown up very isolated, and I tremendously wanted to play with the other kids. I was pumped for friends. My eyes welled with tears of joy. There were kids everywhere. It was glorious. They were on bikes, walking in pairs or small groups. They were playing all sorts of games, and it was clear we were all poor, so I should no doubt fit in well enough. A group of boys carrying a couple bats were walking towards me. You the new family? One of them asked. Yeah, I said, trying to sound casual, only secretly pleased. I knew the drill. Act nonplussed like you don't care and you have a million other things to do. Moved in a few days ago, I added. 
Play ball? The bigger boy asked. Yeah, I like baseball, I said. Want to play? I had to fight the urge to jump up and down. (laughs) Cool, yeah, I guess so. (laughs) Nothing else else to do. Perfect, I thought. They broke into two groups, and clearly this was standard play. Where is she going to go? A slight boy asked in a nasally voice. She can't play with us, he whined. The tallest boy said, I'm Mike. Are you any good? I smiled, smiled inwardly because I was awesome in all things sports. But I heard myself say casually, yeah, I'm okay. I guess. I don't know. I haven't played in a while. Now this is where I shine. I've always been unusually gifted in sports. The one area of my life where I will not compromise and act like a girl. I believe sports saved me. They allowed me to be myself and actually be praised for it. I spotted someone walking towards us, and I was puzzled. I could see we were about the same age, though she was bigger than me. Heck, everyone was. It's just that I was unsure whether this person was male or female. I saw them smiling at us, but the body language was definitely male. I was a bit perplexed by her appearance. She was dirty, like the other kids, with holes in her clothes and badly need of a bath. Her face wore the familiar combination of dirt and red Kool-Aid. I could see her hair was long and matted and worn underneath an even filthier baseball Red Sox cap. I heard the boys behind me groan a little too loud. I still couldn't tell. Is she a boy or a girl? She spotted me and our eyes locked. She was smiling, a full big smile that went from ear to ear and showcased rotting teeth. She confidently waltzed right over to me and thrust her hand out. I'm Pete. I was simply stunned, and I hesitantly returned her shake. Hi, I'm new. I'm Anne. She laughed way too loud and said, you're not new. I'd say you're about my age, 12. (laughs) I, I simply nodded. Don't mind her, I heard Mike say. Just call her Pete. Now let's play. I was stunned. I had never seen anyone like Pete before, and I was so amazed at her courage. Corey, the slight boy boy with the nasally voice, piped in, She's a fag, but she plays good. I nodded again, unable to take my eyes off her. I already knew we were exactly alike, but I was not so full of courage. I'm going to switch this person's pronouns to honor what I believe are their preference. I learned quickly that Pete was not nearly as well accepted as it first appeared. The very next morning, while waiting for the school bus, I witnessed firsthand his usual treatment. I would watch him as he got picked on and beat up constantly, and nobody did a thing to make it stop. I ignored him, and I did little to help as well. I did not actively participate, but I didn't go out of my way to stop it. I would say something to try and distract the guys from picking on him by suggesting some other activity or walk away when it didn't work. But then one day I was playing alone early in the morning before anyone else was awake. I did this to hide my very boyish activities. I was playing matchbox cars, a game which I mostly built cities and drove around attending to important events, primarily food shopping in the mall. My two favorite things to do, and I heard him first. When I looked up, he was towering over me. Hi, Anne. Hi, Pete. I quickly looked around to make sure no one was watching us. What you doing, he asked. Playing matchbox cars. Oh, can I play? My head snapped up. Until now, I hadn't looked directly at him. I answered, well, I kind of finished playing. My voice trailed off as I started to gather my small treasures. Oh, he sounded dejected. 
I stood up and scanned again to make sure nobody was around. It was still so early, I was confident that most people were still in bed. I was calculating the possibility of playing with him for a little bit before folks started to come around. He joined me in looking around and start, stated openly, nobody will see us, and I promise I won't tell. That hurt. I felt fear, shame, and curiosity all at once. Fear that I w if I was caught playing with him, then I would be a fag too. Shame because even at that age, I knew on every level that it was wrong for me to treat him this way. I knew better than most what it felt like to be rejected, yet I was doing just that, and it hurt. It hurt to care so much what other kids thought about me. Of course, my curiosity should be evident by now. Secretly or not so secretly, I wanted to know everything about him. He sensed this because he addressed my fears again. I won't tell anyone. I promise. He asserted more strongly. We played for a bit and, dare I say, even became friends of a sort. I marvel to this day how this child cared so much more about my safety than his own. I remember clearly how he added, with all the dignity allowed to him, I'm a boy. Just like that. Simple certain and clear. I simply ignored his statement and I heard myself say, you can be this car and I'll be that one. I kept looking at him, not sure what his reaction would be. We both dropped down to play together. After some time, we heard others approaching. He simply rose and left. I never had to say a word. And it went on like this for a while. One day while we were playing, I asked him, please call me Heath. I could feel his eyes on me. I kept playing, not looking up, pretending I said nothing and feeling my heart race like it would. I guess maybe he hadn't heard me, but he had. Okay, Heath, and that was that. He kept his word. He never told anyone, and neither did I. I ignored him in public, and he never gave me away. When people picked on him, I tried to discourage it as I had before, but otherwise I didn't do a thing. We never talked about it. Pete and I would play in silence. My curiosity was never satisfied because I never asked anything more of him. His courage and faithfulness is indescribable blessing to me. I realized for the first time in my life I wasn't alone, that at least there was one other person like this. My mom would move again, and I would forget about Pete for a while, as I would most of my friends. It was easier that way to forget and move forward. Thank you, Matthew. Next up we have Tina Charpentier. She lives in Dover, New Hampshire and currently works for Dover High School. For 10 years, she worked at Pease Air National Guard Base as a communications technician installing and fixing radios, phones, computers, stuff like that. Tina likes the phrase, timing is everything and spends time pondering tricky questions like, what is real? Um, <laughs> she thinks about how what we see at any moment is not necessarily what is really happening, and how a small decision or seemingly insignificant event can, in one millisecond, change a whole life's direction, possibly even the lives of many others. There are unsung heroes among us who do not wear capes, nor have superpowers, but whose courage and valor are only recognized when stumbled upon. One evening, on her way home from work, 
During a time when Tina was going to night school to earn a college degree, she stumbled upon an unexpected event as it unfolded and tripped into a situation where timing was everything. Let's hear more in her story. Wait, what? Tina? <laughs> I stopped short, right? I mean, the man was on his knees going through the lady's backpack. She was clearly in distress, but I couldn't tell if she'd been injured or was beaten or anything. I couldn't breathe. My heart was pounding like so I could hear it in my head. You know what I mean? It was, and I didn't know what to do. But timing is amazing. I mean, for me to be there right at that moment, at that time, to be there at that spot, a lot had to happen that day. I mean, I had just started the night class and I needed to go to a store to pick up some materials for, for an art drawing class. And um, I worked at the Pizier National Guard base until about 4.30 every day. The store was only open till five in Portsmouth. So that's kind of tough, if you know what I mean. So um, one day my boss said he let me go a little bit early to try to get in there and get, take care of that. So I thought, well, I'll take care of the extra time too and pick up some groceries for lunches. I didn't have any food. So I went, that, was, that turns out to be a really poor decision that I made because the traffic is horrible at, at that hour of the day, right? So I decided quickly that I needed to make, I turned into where Circuit City used to be. Do you know Circuit City uh, and Ocean State's there now? And I cut across over to Shaw's and I ran in real quick and picked up a few things and get in the express lane. And there were two little old ladies in line, right? And the first one was checking out, and she's kind of going through her purse looking for the exact change, right? <laughs> so the next lady in, directly in front of me also was going through her purse that was about the size of a beach bag, right? And she had half her stuff already out on the express lane, like, you know. And she's still digging around and everything, and I'm thinking, okay, maybe I should abandon this plan and just get going because I looked down the other, everything was busy. Everybody's doing the same thing. So right then, though, the lady in front of me looks up at me, and she notices I'm in my Air Force uniform. She looks at me and a few things, and she goes, why don't you just go on ahead of me? You know, I'm looking for my checkbook. I can't find it. I'm like, what? So I said, uh, no, that's okay, you know, politely. <laughs> so the lady in front of her, though, had just found her last pennies and was actually finishing that transaction. So she goes, no, I insist. Go ahead. So I went ahead and paid, yeah, I'm, phew, I'm out of there. It was awesome. I actually was in my car and back, but the traffic was still awful. So I cut through a few more parking lots, you know, and went out, and I was able to take a ride on red and get out. But now I had to face Woodbury Avenue. <laughs> and that's the kind of road, right, that has a light at every intersection, and it has a lot of intersections. So, and I don't have light karma normally. I just So I get out there, though, on a ride on red, and the next light's green. And then so it's in the next one. And before I know it, it I, I drove through, I drove down the road like I owned it. I get into Portsmouth through all these green lights. I suddenly did have light karma. <laughs> and I get up into Market Street extension, and now I'm into the city, right? And Portsmouth's always had a parking problem. So my whole life it's had a parking problem. And this is no different. I'm thinking, okay. But, you know, so if, you know, at this rate, bumper to bumper, inch by inch, I'm kind of anxious. I'm going, well, even if I at least find the store today, maybe I can make it there tomorrow. 
but if I could find a parking space, I could actually run there quicker than what we're doing. But we're inching along, and we're getting along, and uh, this was now before cell phones, right? So I didn't have, like, these fancy apps to get around and see where I'm going because, again, I still didn't really even know where the store was. I just knew it was on High Street. Uh, so I get up in front of Peavy's hard, hardware store. I don't know if you know where Peavy's used to be. And, again, I guess New Englanders talk like this. You know where the pick and pay used to be? We go over there. Well, well this is where Peavy's hardware was. Uh, it's kind of near. Well, the Portsmouth Brewery's still there now, kind of like right there. <laughs> And you know what? A car puts on its blinker to come out of a spot. No way! I'm like, okay, you go right out. They come out of their spot, and I pulled in. No kidding, this was awesome, because it's right there. So I get in their spot, I jump out to go put coins in the meter. We still had coins in the meters then. And it still had 20 minutes on it. I didn't need 20 minutes. It's already quarter of five. I'm just going to... So I run down next to Peavy's up that alley to get to High Street. And that's where I see this guy going through this lady's backpack. And she's kind of like hanging on a parking meter, you know, and all the distress and everything. And he's on his knees uh, going through this thing. Now, I really could feel my heart beating like that. I could feel the blood in my veins. And I could hear myself. I was trying to breathe quietly. But it seemed like all my body functions were suddenly very loud. <laughs> like the guy should be able to hear me there. Uh, but he was quite busy doing what he was doing. And... Uh, he didn't know I was watching. If I did have a cell phone, I would have called 911, but again, they weren't really a thing yet. And so to go use somebody's phone would have taken a lot of time, and I wasn't quite sure if that really, if we were at that point, right? Maybe it's too urgent. So what am I going to do? I sized the guy up. I mean, he was down on his knees, but he still was bigger than me. He was older than me. I mean, I'm little to begin with. <laughs> he was unaware I was watching, so I did have the element of surprise um, but it was so nervous, and I still hadn't caught my breath. I've done a lot of running. Uh, but if I did confront him, I didn't have a game plan. I mean, what would I do? I didn't have somebody else there. I didn't have anything. I had my hat. You know what I mean? Uh, so I decided, though, I needed to do something. So I took a deep breath, and before I chickened out, I walked right up to him. And I said, excuse me, can I help you? kind of in the most intimidating, nervous, shaky, awful, breathless voice I could come up with. <laughs> and he didn't even look up. He said, yes, please help her. She's having a diabetic attack, and I'm trying to find... I said, I don't care what your excuse is. Will you leave her... Wait, what? <laughs> and I just stood there, and he said, in his most intimidating voice, please help her. But I'm still like, okay, so... He's not robbing her. <laughs> He's trying to help her. So I looked at her again, and she really was struggling to breathe, still hanging on that parking meter. So I reached out my hand, and she grabbed me with her free hand like a vice grip. And I was like, oh, oh, okay, yeah, okay. And I do think I said that out loud, which is unfortunate. <laughs> but he continued frantically digging around in her bag, and he was mumbling awful to himself, and he, he actually started dumping it out and everything, and he found what he was looking for. And he jumped up, and he tried to give her some kind of a tablet, like a Tums or something. And he couldn't get it in, in her mouth because her whole body was clenched, and like including her jaw. And finally, he starts, and he's saying, come on, Diane, you can do it. Come on, Diane, come on, honey, you can do it. And he kept saying that, come on, Diane, honey. And he finally gets one in her mouth, 
And then he gets another one in her mouth, and he keeps saying, come on, Diane, honey, come on, Diane. And finally, she kind of lets the vice grip off my hand, and I was able to look at them more closely because we were all pretty close at this point. <laughs> and he kept giving her those tablets. I, don't, I have no idea how many he ended up giving her, but he gave her enough so that we could pry. He pried her hand off of the parking meter, and we were able to get her to kneel down and rest a little bit better. And he goes, there you go, honey. There you go, Diane. There's my girl. Come on, honey. Like he was trying to wake her. Come on, Diane, you can do it. And he kept giving her those tablets and it was amazing just how soft and gentle and kind he was to her in this moment frantic everything she looked really tired and exhausted and he did too to be honest and he was so worried he obviously cared very much for her uh what seemed like after a really long time come on diane honey she did seem to like look at him and tried to focus, you know, almost as if she had to focus, and then she seemed to recognize him. He goes, there you go, there's my girl. Come on, Diane, you can do it. Then his face softened a little bit, and he said, he looked me over, and I think he looked at my uniform, and maybe that allowed him to trust me a little bit more, I don't know. He said, you know, her doctor recently changed her medication. She seemed to be doing fine, but she wanted to go on a trip to Portsmouth because she loved Portsmouth, and it was a beautiful day. I didn't think it was a good idea, but she loved Portsmouth. So would you please stay with her for a while while I go get the van? Well, I stayed with Diane. We sat there quietly. She still hadn't said anything. I think she was exhausted, but I was exhausted at this point, right? And she was breathing a little more normal now, and so was I. I didn't actually hear my heart beating anymore. We were still holding hands, too, but it wasn't really in a vice grip anymore. It was more in a comforting way. And to be honest, I think she was comforting me at this point. <laughs> I'd never experienced any such thing. Now, I didn't go there expecting to be a hero today. I went for art supplies. <laughs> and to be honest, I wasn't, right? I mean, now that I saw this man's efforts and his own quiet, everyday devotion to Diane. That's heroism. And I thought about how many more were like Mr. Diane out there that no one ever notices. And ever since that day, I look for them, and I do see them sometimes, but they are hard to spot. They do not wear capes or have superpowers, but they are out there. You should look for them, but they really are just ordinary people and they make life bearable or even possible for some people. So when Mr. Diane came back with the van, we both helped Diane over to the van, and while he got her settled, I went over and picked up all her stuff off the sidewalk, it was all over the place, and I handed him her backpack, and he said thank you, and off they went. I didn't get to buy my art supplies that day. <laughs> it was after five by now, but I did walk High Street to look for the place, and you know what? They had built that Portsmouth parking garage right in the middle of High Street, so the place I was looking for really was on the other end. So I would have never found it. <laughs> but thanks to timing and all the decisions made that day, I was able to see a hero in action. So here's cheers to Mr. Diane and all you other unsung heroes out there. Thank you.
Thanks, Tina. I think uh, my heart rate is going patong, patong, patong. <laughs> Got energized from that story. Our last teller tonight is Sharon Jones Jenkins. She lives in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, where she was born and raised as the ninth daughter of Ethel M. and Harry W. Jones in a family of 13 children, 10 daughters, and three sons. During Sharon's young years, she studied ballet, tap dance, and piano until in high school, her dream was to become a, vo a professional vocalist. So in the early 1970s, Sharon moved to LA to study voice with a private coach from the Gilbert and Sullivan School of Music and to work as a studio background singer. After many years, she returned home to Portsmouth where she now enjoys singing engagements at the Press Room, the Dolphin Striker, Rudy's, Grill 28, and many other New Hampshire Seacoast and Boston area venues. She says that sharing stories with her audiences brings her as much joy as does singing. Tonight, Sharon will tell us the story of the time she received a phone call asking her to participate in the burial of people who had died right here in Portsmouth many years ago. They were her ancestors. Sharon's story is titled, The Awakening of One Soul. phone call came around 7 o'clock in the morning <clears throat> and because I'm an entertainer and I don't sleep well I usually go to bed around 4 o'clock in the morning and I get up around 5 o'clock in the morning <laughs> drink, drink some more coffee and then go back to bed until 8 but the phone call came early that day and it was Valerie Cunningham a historian here in Portsmouth, and one of the co-founders of the Black Heritage Trail Foundation. She and I went to school together. When Valerie called and asked if I would participate in a funeral, I, I said, anything for you, Valerie, of course. Well, she said, of course you must have heard that the during the demolition period of these contractors in Portsmouth down on Chestnut Street, they revealed that there were 13 caskets that had been buried underground during the early 1800s. And the city council and many of the folks in Portsmouth came together and put a stop to all of the renovations, if you will, down in that area until they were able to uh, ascertain what all of these caskets meant and who were the people in them. So there was a long period of time to assess what all of this meant and who the people were. What they came up with is that these were Afro-Americans <clears throat> excuse me, who were buried in those caskets in a segregated burial area because back then in Portsmouth 
there were a lot of slaves here in this city. And the black people who were buried in those grounds were not allowed in the regular graveyards in Portsmouth. So I'm not going to tell that story because it's very well told and documented and you can find it in the library and on the internet and everywhere in, in Portsmouth. It's a great story, but that's not my story. Mine is how I felt going through that whole process. Valerie said you're to meet at the Baptist Church on Saturday morning. And what we've done is called Afro-American Elders of Portsmouth to participate in this process. So my niece, Sheila, flew in from Louisiana my good friend Liz Pettiford were all natives of Portsmouth and a few others. There were 20 elders that met at the New Hope Baptist Church that morning. And as we gathered there, we noticed that as soon as I walked in, there were many tables, folding tables in this room downstairs in the church. And there was an archaeologist there who later asked us if we would have a seat and she would explain what it is that she had done. And what she did was take all of those bones and she actually made a body, bodies out of those bones. She matched them up. And the youngest person was about seven years old. And when they found the seven-year-old bones, she said it appeared that the father had been buried in the same casket and the baby was lying on top of him. And that started to really move my emotions because then we had to uh, proceed with taking these bones, and in the old African tradition, what they did was bury, they would wrap the bodies in a cloth and, and tie a string around the body, and that would prepare them for their resting place. So we took these bones, and I walked over to a table, and she asked us to just go to a table and pick the, the table that where you wanted to um, become involved. So I picked the one that had the little girl. But to back up for a minute, she had asked us to bring some type of pin or a brooch or something that we thought dearly of, and we would place that into the casket with these, with these bones. So I found a very old brooch that had belonged to my mother, and I put it into the a casket and into the cloth and I tied up the string. And we moved about doing that for about two hours. And the interesting part is we were very, very talkative ladies and during that time no one was saying anything. We were just moving along and doing what the archaeologists had explained that we needed to do. 
after we wrapped all of the bones up and tied the bow and we had our little gift wrapped in there, um, we paused for a while and we prayed. And then it began, night began to fall. And we were asked after these, all these bodies were wrapped, if we would stay and um, watch over them. So we all stayed, all 20 of us, and we watched over the bodies right from dusk until dawn. And it was a very humbling experience. I, at that point, I felt that I was starting to, to connect to these people from that era way back. It was an amazing uh, feeling and unexplainable. So daylight came, and we were all very exhausted and filled with emotion, of course. And we took uh, a little break and went home and changed up, showered up, and came came back to the to the church and the wooden uh, horse-driven buggy came to the church and the pallbearers showed up and they loaded these caskets onto the back of this horse-driven wooden buggy, buggy. And we got in our cars and we drove downtown where the ceremony was about to take place. And as we all stood there, of course, the sculpture had already been there, and most of you probably know where that site is. You've seen it. And the, the statues are just beautiful. And it got very quiet downtown that day. And um, I remember standing there with my, my niece, and it was kind of chilly. And it, as it got quiet, and we're standing on Chestnut Street, the, you could hear the sound of the, the horse's feet and the buggy very slowly walking to the site. And I looked up, and I just kind of lost it. Had these caskets with the proud Negro guy, black guy driving the carriage and it's creaking like it probably would have back in that era. And the horse stopped and the carriage stopped and they unloaded all of the caskets. All of the pallbearers were dressed in tuxedos and they removed each casket very carefully and very slowly. And then the ceremony began with uh, Reverend Hilson, who is not any longer with us. He uh, did a sermon of some sort for the those that we were burying. And when it was over, and I went back to my my home, I didn't realize in, until I got back home uh, what had actually happened. 
And at that time, I started having these thoughts, like, how did a people get to become or not become that which they were not during that era? Why? I started asking myself all kinds of questions. Maybe some of these people were related to me. And how was it that they were buried underneath these grounds in Portsmouth for all these decades? And, and how come nobody cared? And what I, how I resolved that whole thing, I think, emotionally, is that that day they did care. Everybody came out. The city councilmen came out. People that didn't even live in Portsmouth came out. And we really didn't know who these people were. But I felt that we knew who they were at that time, at that point. I, I felt that they were asking us to find them and to present them and to make them known and to not have them invisible anymore. So as it ended up, as the day closed down, and I remember going out to dinner by myself and just trying to put this all together. Because I'm from Portsmouth, and I've been through some trials and tribulations myself here growing up, and you've heard the stories, because I'm from here, I felt proud that day that we were able to turn those things around, that people cared enough to give these slaves, these people, an identity. And I was grateful, and I still am. Thank you. Well, thank you so much to all of tonight's amazing storytellers for sharing these really powerful stories with us. Um, and also thanks to all of you who came to be in the audience and hold this, um, this space and this beautiful night together. So. Coming up next, um, we will have an interview by David Frainer of Matthew Francis. But first, I have a few things to tell you. The most important being that this, after, after this, True Tales is on its summer hiatus. We have no workshops or shows in July or August. Our next show will be on Tuesday, September 24th. It has an open theme, meaning no theme. Um, not the theme is like open. Anyway, um, and I think we have room for one more teller that night, and we definitely have space for our, our October and November programs. We'd love to hear from you if you have a story. Our email is truetaleslivenh1, the number one, at gmail.com. And if you are interested in telling a story, one thing that we really recommend you do is come to one of our monthly storytelling workshops. Whether you're brand new and not even sure you're actually going to do it, or you've done this before and, you know, going to keep on, 
Um, we welcome you. They happen here at PPMTV, 280 Marcy Street, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, on the first Tuesday of most months from 7.30 to 9. They're free, open to everyone, and the next one is September 3rd. You can watch us on Comcast Channel 98, Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. and Saturdays at 1 p.m. And anytime as video on demand. You can go to our website, truetaleslivenh.org, to access those options and more. Even before we're going to be back here, though, at PPM TV, you can catch True Tales Live on stage as part of the Act One Fall Festival on Sunday, September 15th at 2 p.m. at the West End Studio Theater, 959 Islington Street in Portsmouth. Uh, the show will feature six tellers from previous shows. It will be our fifth time doing this. It's always a really great event. And we do suggest you get your tickets early. They always sell out, and I, we just got word that this one is already nearing sold out. So um, act1.org to come to that. Let's thank a few of those who make this show possible. John Lovering, Pat Spaulding, Steve Koval, David Frainer, Chad Cordner, and Sam Adams. I'm Amy Antonucci, signing off until our next True Tales Live show, and do stay tuned for David Frainer interviewing Matthew Francis.